sure. Uh, I'll tell you a story. If there has been anyone likely older, who probably within the last week or so was in need of a little extra hearing assistance, and you used one of our hearing devices, and it did not work, that's probably because you had the microphone. Um, if you see any earwax on here, um, you can be just as grossed out as I am at the thought. Um, but no, it was back there with all those hearing devices wrapped up, and I was back there, and I thought, I'm pretty sure I didn't have anything to do with this. So if I picked it up, what would I do? And I thought, you know, it kind of looks like those hearing device things. So for anyone who, and if you ever sat through a service and heard probably sticking in someone's ear at some point, um, but uh, all is well. Everything is back as it should be once again. Uh, we're going to spend uh, a little bit of time over the next uh, few weeks, and I don't know how many weeks, few weeks is, but looking at um, the identity and the purpose of, of the church. One of the things that we recognize is that the Bible paints an awful lot of different pictures metaphors, images that says that the church is, is like. Um, one of the things as we go through this is I'm not going to do all the heavy lifting, so you guys are going to have to help me out here. So we are going to, before we proceed, we are going to collectively come up with ten images of the church in the Bible. So we're not moving on until we get ten. Go. Berea. What's that? Berea. Okay, that's an example of a church, an, an image of a church. The church is like. Or the church of family. Good. A body. A bride. A priesthood. Six more to go. Belonging to Christ. Those belonging to Christ. The saved. The awake. The way. Okay. The flock. I heard somebody say flock two more. Brethren. 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 And what's that? And cistern. The, the brethrens and the cisterns of the uh, of, of the Lord. I will um, I will show an equal amount of mercies I've been shown and accept both of those answers um, towards our ten. Um, here's a guy named Carl Dudley. Here, here's his list. He says there are some things that are objects: salt, rock, road, table, cup, products, building, garden, flock, house. Living things, body, seed, fruit, vine, branches, tree. There are feelings, um, love, judgment, rejection, election, forgiveness, redemption. Human relationships that are used to talk about the church. Daughters, friends, citizens, community, slaves, bride of Christ, members of the body, and on and on it goes. And so you have all of these... All of these images and pictures of what the church is, and, and somebody, and I, I, I like this image, he said it's like you have all these shards of glass. And however you choose to put those shards of glass together, um, in terms of a, what's that thing? That Mosaic is close. What am I thinking? Stained glass window. <coughs> Makes a very different thing. So one of the things is that we recognize we have all these, these images and for different um, at different times, we make those images predominant. We say this is a priority over this. And, and how we arrange all of those images very much impacts um, the final picture we have in terms of what the church is and what the church is for. 
I want us to be turning to John chapter 9 for a moment. Um, because one of the first things I think that we need to establish as we deal with the church is the fact that the church is not uh, obsolete. I don't know that, well, maybe somebody will say it, but, but there seems to be an increasing sentiment that the church is no longer necessary. Um, we've got, um, you know, my God and I, we go in the garden together. So what do I need you for? Um, I've, got the, uh, I've got the direct line to God. God saved me. And so what's the, what's the necessity for the church? Church is, is, in some people's mind, church is an elective choice for those who are saved. Um, biblically, I don't see a differentiation between one becoming a Christian and becoming a part of the body of Christ. That those two things, we see a relationship. And we're going to talk about that a little bit from the context of John chapter 9, probably a story that we, uh, we know well. There's a man who since birth is born blind. And, fascinatingly enough, Jesus heals the man, which we would likely call that good news or bad news. So that's good news. You can see again. Except everything that happens in his life in response to that tends to be more negative. He is questioned, he is judged, um, and there is this concern with this man um, because we're not sure why he can see. So they call in his parents in John chapter 9, verse 22. Actually, we'll begin in verse 20. His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But we do not know how it, it, how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. So thinking, hmm, that's kind of interesting. I mean, somebody asks you if your kid can see, you either know or you don't know. And we're going to come to find out the reason they give such an obscure answer in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Now, for us, we're probably wondering, so what? I mean, this guy heals your son, he can see. Who cares whether you're put out of the synagogue? Somebody tell me, why do you think it's significant that one might be put out of the synagogue? You're out of community. Okay, you're out of community. In what ways are you out of community when you're out of the synagogue? Job. Okay, job. How else? Trading in the market. Trading in the market. Family. Family. You, to, to be put out of the community means to be utterly on your own and to be left to your own vices. In fact, if you probably gave someone an option in that culture saying, would you rather be able to see, would you choose to be blind or choose to be ostracized by a community? Most people would probably choose to be blind. Okay? Um, because at least if you're blind, you've got family who's feeding you. Uh, people are taking care of you. This person clearly has family who is, is, is aware of him. People are taking him down. Um, down there by the pool. And now, all of a sudden, Jesus does this great thing, and we find out that the Jews are putting people out of the synagogue who seem to be showing support for Jesus. So they keep pointing it back. You ask him, you ask him. And eventually, the Pharisees do ask him. And guess what happens? They don't like his answers. In verse 34, they answered him, You were born entirely in sin, 
and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. And you have to wonder whether this guy's thinking, life would have been better without this Jesus guy. I mean, I can see, that's pretty cool, but what good is not being able to see the food that you can't eat? I mean, what, what good is it to be able to see your family but they won't talk to you? What good is it to have my sight but to not have any sense of fellowship or of community? What does John talk about next? John chapter 10. Very truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them all, uh, brought them out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep now follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of a stranger. Coming down to verse 7, Very, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. And all who came before me were thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you notice that there is this aspect where Jesus is creating what? A new community. For those who are, and this would be a very real issue for those who are... Uh, Potentially considering discipleship as John is writing. Um, because there is this threat that if you follow this guy, Jesus, you're also going to be put out of the synagogue. You're going to be likely disowned by your family. You're going to be put away. And you're going to lose community. And one of the things that John is teaching, for those who are put out of the community, Christ has created a new community for us. A, a new flock. And he is now the good shepherd of this flock of people. And those who become a part of this flock now have this new community, one that they have, um, have now embraced. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, where we can see this notion again that the necessity of both individual conversion and also of community. Acts chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 37. I bet this is not the first time you've ever heard this Bible verse read. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter said to the other apostles, Brothers, Peter said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. So, conversion is this aspect where an individual, a person, comes to faith, responds in this way that we see biblically mentioned here of repentance and baptism, and it's something that each and every person does. So, conversion involves this individual aspect, this individual choice. Do, do I believe this message of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? And am I going to make a choice to follow that? So, there is this private, individual, personal aspect of faith. But we don't finish there. So let's continue in verses 40 through 42. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Um, John Scott says in response to this, uh, Peter was not asking for private and individual conversions only, but for a public identification with other believers. Commitment to the Messiah meant commitment to the Messianic community, that is, the church. Indeed, they would have to change communities, transferring their membership from one that was old and corrupt to one that was new and being saved. You see, what is he asking them to turn away from? It is from this corrupt generation. Um, so people are a part of a, a, a people group, and so he's asking for them to transfer their allegiance from that corrupt generation into a new allegiance to the people who are committed to Christ. The, the notion of one being a Christian outside of a body of believers is not a biblical notion. It's not a biblical concept at all. Um, Paul mentions this a couple of times. Uh, here's 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, all of the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Romans 14, 7. We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. Ephesians 4, 25. So then put away falsehood. Let us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. So we recognize that, that at our conversion, we are added to the church, and that is not an elective secondary choice. I mean, sometimes I think we see that as, okay, you're a Christian, now you have to decide if you want to be a part of a group of believers. Biblically, we see that those things happen collectively, and we become a new community. But the question is, we become a new community for what function or for what purpose? Now, I said I wasn't necessarily going to follow this. Um, Brian McLaren says that churches will often emphasize one of these three things, um, and there's a case that can be made for each of these. Uh, some churches will emphasize our purpose is to get more Christians. Some churches will say our purpose is to get better Christians, and some say it is to create an authentic missional community. Now, all of these three are interrelated. If we as a community are not representing who Christ is, does that affect our ability to get more Christians? Yeah, because, because we as a church, if we're not witnessing what it looks like to be a part of the body of Christ, that impacts our ability to get more Christians. If we are an, an unhealthy body who simply just want to get more Christians, you know, one of the things that I've, I've, I've often said to people in jest, but if I had more time, I would confirm this as a, as a true thing. If you took all the missionary letters, say, probably starting in the 1960s through the 1980s, missionary reports coming out of Africa, and they would have these huge conversion numbers. And if you added all of those numbers, I bet they would surpass the population of India. Because there was this thing called rice Christians. Rice Christians is this notion that people come in, they will see this Western person coming with all this Western affluence and resources, and they say, what do I need to do to get a piece of that? And they're talking about this thing called baptism, and so people get baptized, and some people as missionaries would come and say, well, we can't help you unless you're baptized. And people say, yeah, no problem, I'll get baptized. And so there is this recognition that you can get more Christians, but that not be good for the kingdom. Um, there, that, that was my, and, and, and this is not intended to be a political statement, other than how it can be applied. When there was at some point with this travel ban, the, the notion that Christians might be accepted, my first thought was, we're going to have a bazillion more Christians. Why? Because, oh, I have to be a Christian to, to, 
be exempt from this travel ban? Sure, I'll do that for a travel ban. When people are incentivized to become Christians, we might get more Christians, but the question is, are we getting faithful Christians? And so we say, well, we, we want to make sure that we're not just getting um, more Christians without any sort of substance. We want to be sure that we're getting better Christians. But as we're focusing on developing better Christians, it's easy to then forget about getting more Christians. And then are we really living the kind of a life that we should be living? And so McLaren says we have to uh, ask these questions as we're deciding what to do for a church. We ask the question, does this help uncommitted people become followers of Jesus? Does this help followers of Jesus become better followers of Jesus? Does this enhance the development of authentic Christian community? Does this empower, equip, deploy the church for a missional identity for the good of the world? Now, here's the interesting thing. Probably there would be a difference among us in terms of which of these components we need to deal with first. Let's do this first because then that's going to lead to this. Somebody else might say, let's do this first because it's going to lead to that. Um, here's uh, Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 19 and following, probably again one that you uh, are well familiar with. The imperative of Matthew um, 28 19, so this is the command, is make disciples. And then there are these, these participles, that they're, they're connected to it. In fact, people will say by reference to their connection, this is how it happens is a way that you could say it. So the command is make disciples, and so what is necessary to make disciples? Churches should be about the process of going. Now, if I told you to go to McDonald's, you would have to do what? You have to leave where we are and go to McDonald's. The church's primary missional word today is often not go, but what? Somebody says send, somebody says stay, come, right? What do you do when you find a lost person? You invite them to church. They should come. Um, we, we want to show and we want to display this, this Christian community, and we've got this great Christian community. So you need to come inside our doors to experience that. We just have to recognize that the movement is actually the opposite these doors and what happens inside these doors moves out. Okay? We, we go as witnesses to the world. And again, the function of going is in order to make disciples. And what else do we do in the effort to make disciples? We baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But they're not disciples yet until they go through this process of being taught um, to obey everything I have commanded. So you see those three, more Christians, better Christians, authentic missional community? Well, those are all those sub-statements, those, those participles that are connected with how do we make disciples. We go, that means being a missional community, showing people what it is like to be the people of God. Um, uh, baptizing, we are going to get more Christians, teaching them to obey everything. We're going to help them to be better Christians. So even within the Great Commandment, the Great Commission, you have these aspects that are, that are pulled out, that all of them are there and a part of what it means to be the church and what the mission and the function of the church is. Um, and then there's this recognition, I am with you always to the very end of the age, that everything that we do, it comes out of the presence and the power of Christ. Now, every church is going to adopt two postures in terms of one is our posture towards each other, Second is going to be our posture towards outsiders. 
And then every church is going to go through the process of debating who's who. Who are the insiders? And who are the outsiders? Um, can anybody share a New Testament Bible verse or Bible story where there was a discussion about who's an insider and who's an outsider? Can you think of an example? When the disciples went to Christ and asked to be placed on his right hand, that discussion was around that. Okay, okay. So we're going to have we're going to now have concentric circles of of closernessness. I think I might have made up that word, but I'm not sure. It's kind of like you have, you know, um, family members are, you know, are, are invited. You're like, well, I'm the third cousin once removed. Can I go? Well, no, you're an insider, but you're not that much of an insider. So there is these discussions about who is closer to the very center point of, of an insider. What other examples do we have? Okay, okay. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that. Mary might be considered by some to be the insider because she chose to sit at Jesus' feet. Okay, okay. So you have these, these, the, the, the relatedness to Jesus, and, and, and what of these ones who are not, you know, are, are not um, sitting at Jesus' feet, and what does that mean about them, Art? Uh, Acts 15, you know, are the Gentiles who have not embraced the law, uh, part of the fellowship of the body. Yeah. So that's a huge one for the New Testament, right? It's the relationship of the Gentiles within, um, within the church. Um, if they are determined to be an authentic, genuine, full insiders, we're going to relate to them differently than if we still think in some ways they're outsiders. And some people thought they were outsiders, right? What did they need to do in order to become insiders? Circumcision. Um, others said, no, you don't need to be circumcised. They're already insiders. And so there's always this... This wrestling, because I need to know whether you're an outsider or an insider, because now I, need to, now I know how I'm going to react to you or, or relate to you. Um, the teacher of the law um, who asked Jesus, you know, uh, who is my neighbor? Because he knew, I know how to treat an insider. Jesus, you need to tell me who an insider is. And in Jesus' story, the insider is who? Oh, the outsider is now the insider. The Samaritan gets to be, treat him as if he would an insider. And so there's this confusion. You have the, the, the disciples in uh, Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 49 and 50. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. And, but Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. Um, you have context in like in Acts whenever you say did you receive the spirit when you were baptized well we only know of John's baptism and so are those who have had John's baptism insiders or outsiders and we find they need to be baptized into Christ to be insiders so it's important as we talk about missional um, about what is the purpose of the church and if we if we talk about it as reaching out to outsiders it's important for us to have a pretty clear sense of who the outsiders are and who the insiders are. And there's discussions all throughout the New Testament that help to, um, to establish or to explore some of that. Wow. That was very exciting, wasn't it? <clears throat> Let me just ask this question. We'll talk about insider-outsider in this context.
As Christians, we're supposed to be nice to people, right? Loving, kind, compassionate. And that's supposed to be shown in, in, in what we do. I'm going to ask this question. Let's read Galatians 6.10 together. Because we're going to find that the Bible does have a specific way how it wants us to relate with each other as insiders. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us do good, uh, do work for the good of all, and especially those of the family of faith. Somehow, and in some way, we have an obligation towards those who are insiders for care and for provision. <coughs> now, there's an irony whenever we have care for insiders is it's easy to detach that from its outside perspective. Why would it be important for us to treat insiders, in this case, showing, uh, doing good for all, especially those who are family of faith. In what way does that function in terms of our relationship with outsiders? Or is that just for insiders? Demonstration. Demonstration. You are the salt of the earth. You are a light. So as we treat one another with kindness and with generosity and we care for one another, that becomes a testimony that this community is different than that community. So it is an insider action for the function of becoming a light or a witness to those who are outside. And there is this heavy emphasized emphasis. E even you know one of the debates in terms of insider outsider comes out of Matthew twenty five forty, um, where you have you know I gave you a cup of water and I visited you in jail and when did you see this? Jesus' response to Matthew twenty five forty is, and the king will answer them, truly I tell you. Just as you did it to any one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. We often apply that as an outsider text, don't we? But what Jesus is actually specifically talking about is your treatment and your behavior of those who are insiders. We need to reflect the kind of a community that shows our care and our love and our respect for each other. And that then becomes um, a witness, Doreen. Yeah, yeah. So there is this, there is this recognition. If, if the church is a, a community that represents the kind of community God wants to exist here on earth, just as it is in heaven, um, that if, if we're not caring for those within the community, it, it is a poor testimony to those outside, and yet that is not a call to neglect or to ignore those who are outside. So both our action towards outsiders and our action towards insiders ultimately has an outsider intention. Which is we want to be witnesses to what we what we receive. We want to be examples of what Christ can do in a person's life and also in the midst of a community of believers. That's why whenever you have in Acts chapter six the uh, the feeding of the widows, that's why that was such an important thing. I mean, what kind of a community message are we sending if we're not even taking care of those who are part of our um, of our community? But 
see if I can find this slide real quick and then we'll finish up here. In our effort to care for those inside, there's, there's, and these will go in the exact opposite directions. In terms of our insider posture, there's always the danger of becoming too self-interested and preoccupied. Okay? Which we just said, that's a biblical thing. Taking care of each other is a biblical thing. But what can happen is our care for each other can happen to the neglect of or without recognizing it is for a witness to our community. That is the exact thing that happened with God's chosen people in Israel. They were to be a light to the nations. They were to be a royal priesthood. And how they interacted as a community was supposed to then shine out. And, and instead of their, their posture of care being a reflection, it became a holy hut. Okay, so there's always that danger of that happening. The second danger is sinful accommodation to your culture. You, 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 can, be, you can be so um, desirous to say we want to be, uh, show our culture that, you know, that we're just like them. And all of a sudden there's no differentiation. Okay? And so those are two postures towards um, the outside communi community, um, some that are healthy and some that clearly are unhealthy. Um, so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to look um, at some of these internal and external dimensions of what the church is to be. I think that the word I like the most in terms of the purpose of the church, and we'll be unpacking this, is the word witnesses. Um, Acts 1, 8, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And witness in the Bible will carry two concepts, and we'll unpack this more. Witness can be the verbal uttering of something. Okay? To be a witness is we can testify that which we have seen, that which we have heard. John says we testify. We're witnesses to that. But a person can also be witnessed by their behavior and by their action. It also serves as a witness. And so we're going to explore how, how we should function internally with, the, with each other, how we should function externally in our community, all with the end goal that we might be a witness um, to those who are able to see um, what happens within uh, this community. And that's all I'm going to do for tonight. And so if we would like to stand and sing a song, and if anyone is desirous to respond, you always have that opportunity. A charge to keep.